Beloved, as everybody's coming off the stage, I want you to open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 52. I want you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52, and some of you are sitting here and saying, that is not what you said you were going to preach on. You said you're going to preach on Acts chapter 2 and start in verse 22 with Peter's sermon. And that's what I was going to do. But in my best, um, in my best Peyton Manning, Omaha, 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 I'm going to call an audible. Actually, you know what I found out at the Ligonier conference is actually when, 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 uh, he said that, one of, the, one of the guys that was a pastor there, um, he had a, he had one of his linemen that goes to his church. And, uh, and he said, actually, when Peyton Manning said Omaha, it really didn't mean anything at all. But in my case, it does. We're going to look this morning at Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13 through Isaiah 53. And I'll tell you why. As I was, as we got done with men's Bible study on Friday, I went into my office, I sat down and, and I was just reading some scripture to get my mind settled before I was going to start writing my sermon, right? And so the first thing that I turned to was this text in Isaiah because it's so rich and it, and it's, it beautifully describes the fullness of Christ's life from incarnation, uh, through, you know, his crucifixion, his resurrection and his exaltation, right? So I'm reading it. And then I just felt absolutely compelled that I needed to preach it. So I'm like, well, I guess there goes all the study in Acts chapter 2 right out the window, right? Maybe that'll come in handy some other time. Um, But this is where we need to be this morning. We need to see this text this morning for what it is. It's the great boast of God in His Son. And uh, let's stand together. And I want to read these words together. And then uh, we'll pray. And then we'll dig into this text. Look at it. Pick it up with me. Isaiah chapter 52 and starting in verse 13. This is God speaking through Isaiah. And he says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, 
he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He, the Lord, shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession. For the transgressors. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, I don't know. When I think about this and I look at this text, I can't think of another text that captures so succinctly the glory and the majesty of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I look at this text and I am in awe and I am amazed. And Father, I realize how completely unworthy I am to preach it. How completely incapable I am apart from your spirit. I realize, Lord God, how impossible it is for the people that are in this room, Lord God, for them to hear these words with the effect and with the, with the depth and with the power, Father, that they need to hear them apart from the intervening, interceding work of your Holy Spirit. Now, we're dependent on you this morning. We're dependent upon you at all times, but we are especially dependent upon you, Father, to unfold your word to our hearts. We need you to do it. We need you to teach us. We need you, Lord God, to open up your word, to break the bread of life and feed us. Feed us. Lord, I am praying for every soul in this room today. Lord, I know there are some here who are here out of tradition, who don't really know Christ, who don't really understand the gospel, God, I pray you make it clear to them today. And I pray that you would make Christ compelling to their souls today. And I pray, God, that you would draw them and save them. And I pray, Lord God, for for your people that are gathered here, that are in this room today, that, Father, we might come away from this word today, that you would make us to come away, Lord God, with a heart is far more devoted to you than it is right now. I pray that you would enthrone yourself in our praises. I pray, Father, that you would cease primacy. You would seize it, primacy in our hearts. And that, God, you would, you would make us to treasure Christ as we ought. I pray you'll have your way in our midst right now, Lord God. Come and meet with us. Fill me, I pray, with your spirit. Give me the unction of the Holy Spirit to speak only as you would have me speak. Only and completely as you would have me speak. And let me faithfully proclaim your word to a people that are hungry and thirsty to hear it. 
I pray in Jesus' holy name. I ask this, God, relying entirely upon you, Father. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. This passage, beloved, we're looking at this morning. This is a passage that Charles Spurgeon called the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. The Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. In fact, he went on to say that this subject, what, what Isaiah writes here is completely, it, it is, it's worthy only of an angel's tongue. Moreover, he says it needs Christ himself really to expound it. And I don't disagree with him. I think he's absolutely right. These are some of the richest words, beloved, in the entire Bible. They are deep with meaning. They are, they are just full of wonder. And, and I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to preach these words. And I'm not saying that as an affectation. I really believe it. Like, I'm not worthy to do this. Really, nobody is. But it is my sincere prayer that God will, through the exposition of His Word, open the eyes of your heart, open the eyes of my heart, that He will stir up the affections of our souls and so glorify the Lord Jesus Christ before our eyes that we will treasure Him above everybody else. And that he'll be magnified mightily before us today. This passage of scripture, this great, glorious passage of scripture is God's testimony to the glory and the majesty and the worth of his holy son, his servant, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what this text is about. And it is, it, it is meant to just grab hold of us. And not let go of us until we get done with it. You know what I mean? Like, so in other words, no drifting today. No checking out, even for a second. No being like, I wonder how that ham's doing in the oven. You should have thought about that ahead of time. Right? None of that stuff. Instead, let this text grip you like it should. Let it grab you like it ought to. Okay? What God has done through Isaiah is to, to make this testimony of his son. And he gives it to us in four stanzas. He gives it to us really in like, in four groupings of verses. Okay? And the first thing that we're going to see here is this. We're going to see this first stanza in which we are called by God first to behold my servant. I love this. I want you to look at it with me again. Here's what happens. It all begins. The whole section begins. With the great boast of the Father in His Son. The great boast of the Father in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at it again, starting in verse 13 in chapter 52. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle Many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard, they understand. Now, what's going on here? In these first opening verses, God is declaring, right, the glory and the majesty of his son. He's declaring his universal worth and his greatness. He's declaring his impact, the impact that he will have upon the entire world. That's what he's talking about. The impact that he will have upon all of mankind. Okay? And, and he says, look, God's saying to us, behold my servant. Behold him. Focus your attention on my son and whom I am well 
please set your hearts and your minds and your eyes upon him. For here's what he's going to do. He is going to act wisely. Or in other words, he will live a life. He will live a life. And he will act in a way that is fully pleasing to me. That's what God is saying. He will, he will do my will perfectly and he will prosper in everything that I have given him to do. He will be perfect in his fulfillment of my will. And because of that, he's going to be high and lifted up. Because of that, he's going to be exalted. He's going to be magnified. He's going to receive the place of honor that is above everybody else. And mouths will be stopped because of him. And tongues will be stilled because of his glory. He's going to be high and lifted up. Held in the highest place of honor and dignity. Because through his suffering... Through his suffering that will be a spectacle to all mankind. That will make men hide their eyes and cover their mouths. Through the the spectacle of his suffering, many people will be sprinkled. He will sprinkle many nations. They will be cleansed. They will be made righteous in the eyes of God. And what, who he is and what he has done... It will shut the mouths of kings and those whom the world esteems as powerful. Nations will fall before him in adoration. The one who's marred and crucified will be exalted and God will see to it. God will see to it. Those who draw back in misunderstanding, they will have their understanding opened. They'll come to see who he is and what he's done. The horror of, of, of what he must endure will be replaced by wonder and worship at what he has done. And here's the question. That's an awesome prologue, isn't it? That's a great testimony to the Son, isn't it? Here's the question. Why, why, why does God feel, need, feel, feel the need to put that at the beginning here? Why does he feel like he needs to put this prologue at the beginning of, of what, fo- what follows? I'll tell you why. It's because of the brutal nature of what unfolds in the next several verses. And it's almost like from the beginning, the father is saying, listen, make it all the way through, right? Don't stop. Don't, don't stop. Don't get hung up at verse seven or eight. Don't even stop with verse nine. Don't even stop with the first half of verse 10. Get all the way through this because it's going to get dark. But oh, will the light shine in the end. So let's take a look at this message. And I want us to see that it doesn't begin with a very flattering depiction of us. It begins with Christ's rejection from the fallen world of men. That's what it begins with. It begins with our rejection of the Holy One of God. Look at it. Isaiah says, Verses 1 through 3. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Isaiah describes for us in prophetic terms, but we're looking back at this. It's been fulfilled. He describes for us in, 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 in perfect clarity exactly the response of sinful mankind to the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't he? Doesn't he? He describes perfectly how our world responded to the coming into it of the Holy One of God. And what Isaiah says is this, the Son of God came into the world, right? The arm of the Lord. That's such a great like phrase, okay? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a Hebrew idiom. It, it's the idea of strength and power and might residing in Christ, right? The arm of the Lord. He came into the world, the anointed one from heaven, the savior of sinners, the Lord of creation, and yet very few really believed and understood him, did they? Very few. Who has really understood Christ? Who has really understood the cross and the power of God and the wisdom of God? Who's really understood his mission? And the answer to that is, apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit to our hearts, except God unfold the worth of Christ to us, to our understanding, the answer to that question is no one. No one understands on his own. No one understands in a saving way on his own. The Spirit of God has to make that clear to us, right? Here was the deal about him. He, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Isaiah says, and, and he's speaking here of the, of, of the Lord's incarnation. He says, Jesus, this promise of God, he put on flesh and he became man. And before the Lord, he grew like a young plant out of dry ground, like a root out of dry ground. In other words, here's what happened. Jesus came and he was so beautiful in the eyes of the father. So pleasing to him. You know why? Because he wasn't like us. That's why. Because it wasn't like us at all. He was pleasing to the Father because he lived in a way that no man ever lived. And he came forth like something of a promise from out of the spiritually dry ground of Israel. He's fully obedient to the heart of God. He, he always did what was pleasing to the Father. So much so that the father said of him, this is my beloved son. You finish it. And whom what? I am well pleased. But the assessment of fallen men was totally different. Totally different. Isaiah describes the perception of fallen man. He says this. He includes himself. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Fallen humanity looked at the Lord Jesus Christ and saw nothing to draw us to him. Nothing. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that really kind of crazy? We looked at him and saw nothing that would draw us to him as a whole mankind was unimpressed color me unimpressed right we saw nothing that the world values he didn't have that superficial and fading beauty that's so captivating to us right he didn't look like brad pitt or whoever else i don't know who women think are attractive these days it's hard for me to keep track who's really a man and who wants to be a man and 
I, I just, I don't know. Who is it, ladies? Who's like the heartthrob these days? Who's the handsome guy? Somebody, anybody, help me. Huh? Anybody, did anybody say their husband? Just saying, just, just throwing that out there. We saw nothing in, the, uh, you know, that superficial beauty that captivates us. He was despised. He was rejected. He was not held in any kind of esteem. In fact, it, it strikes me. Sinful humanity was only so happy to have Jesus, you know, work miracles to their benefit. They were only so happy to have him feed them. They were only so happy to like, hey, get cleansed of leprosy or raise my kid from the sick bed. They were only so happy to take advantage of his mercy and, and all of that. But you know what? It was insincere and short-lived, wasn't it? Wasn't it? This one of perfect righteousness, this one of perfect love, perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge was examined by mankind, was evaluated, was found insignificant, and was declared worthless. Part of that was because Jesus wasn't the life of the party. He wasn't the jokester. He wasn't Mr. Funny Guy. He wasn't, you know, happy-go-lucky, right? Scripture says, he tells us here, that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What's that mean? It means this. It means that the weight of human sin and the corruption of the human soul and the reality of that great chasm between the holy God and sinful men and the fate of lost sinners rested on Jesus in a way that it did not rest on anybody else. Now, it's not that Jesus was absent any joy. He was not Mr. Morose, lemon sucker, you know, always down. That's not the idea, obviously. He couldn't have been that way all the time. He's the king of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is one of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, right? Right? Say yes, because it is. But the idea here is that Jesus, in a way that nobody else was, including the prophets that came before him, he was deadly earnest about the fallen state of sinners. He was deadly earnest about God's judgment on rebel lawbreakers and God rejectors. He was intense when he spoke his words of truth. And he was sober-minded in his judgments. And he was serious in his ministry. By this sinful world, Jesus the Messiah, the suffering servant, the arm of the Lord was despised and rejected because he wasn't what the world wanted. Can I tell you what? That reaction, that reaction to the Lord Jesus Christ says absolutely nothing about his true glory and everything about the sinfulness of man, doesn't it? Everything about the comprehensive and radical depravity of fallen humanity who could not and who would not see His glory. This is, I'm not trying to be like hyperbolic here. Oh, this is the truth, right? Like, God put on flesh and came to earth and our first instinct was to kill Him. Consider... Consider how the unbelieving Pharisees treated Jesus. These servants of God. And God comes into their midst. And they said, you know what? You're illegitimate. You're born in sin. 
They called him a Samaritan and a friend of sinners. They labeled him a blasphemer because he said what was true. I'm the son of God. They claimed that he was an insurrectionist against Caesar's rule. They said he was demon-possessed. They said he was a lawbreaker. They said he was deluded and a false teacher, that he was a drunkard and a glutton. Consider what happened to him in Nazareth, his hometown. Certainly his hometown should love him, right? I mean, you know, that's a special place. Everybody in your hometown loves you. They all know your name, right? Yeah. Coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. Now, get this. He teaches them in their synagogue so that they're astonished. They're amazed. They're overwhelmed with the authority and the wonder and the majesty and the power with which he teaches the word of God, right? Right? That's what that word means. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And then it all goes downhill from there. They say, well, is is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Matthew 13, verses 54 through 57. They took offense at him. They refused to believe the truth. It wasn't just his hometown, it was his home. John 7 tells us that even his own brothers mocked him because they didn't believe in him. And then spurred by the religious leaders, the people of Jerusalem and all those who had come for the Passover, many of whom had been the recipients of the miraculous ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, declared him a criminal, worse than Barabbas, And called for his death. When Pilate came before them and said, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Should I give you your king or or Barabbas? And they said, well, give us Barabbas. Crucify him. Crucify him. Let his blood be on us and all our children. Crucify him. That was the evaluation of the vast majority. And even when he hung on the cross, that wasn't enough. They sneered at him. They said stuff like, save yourself and come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now I'll ask you a question. And I want you to be real honest. In our world of 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 make-believe offense and oppression and all this other stuff and all this other rejection and all this, you know, oh, my life is ruined because I was rejected, you know, at 10 years old, I got cut from my baseball team and my, my dad told me it was because I stunk. In this world of, of just over-sensitivity to everything, Can we just be honest and say that no one has ever been so rejected as was the Son of God? Isaiah, in fact, captures the foolish perception of mankind as Christ hung on the cross, as he hung there bleeding 
and, and, and in agony. He captures the foolish perception of mankind in verse 4. The awareness, the ironic later awareness that surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we, in the moment, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In other words, as Christ hung on that cross and died, everybody thought he deserved it. That he was a bad man. That, that, that he was being struck down by God for blasphemy. That he was a man who was suffering at the hands of God for his own sins. That he was dying in humiliation because that's what he deserved. They thought that Jesus was being punished for his own sin and they were wrong. Wrong. He was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, Hebrews seven twenty six. There was no sin in him at all. He was utter perfection before the eyes of God. He was stricken. He was smitten. And he was afflicted. For them. For them. And for us. Bearing the grief and the sorrows of our sin. Enduring what we deserve. And I'm going to tell you, beloved, that is why so many people, so many people, so few, are are so many have rejected and refused to receive the report that was made about the Christ. Who have refused to believe the report made about Christ, like Isaiah says earlier in this text. Who has believed our report? It's because they don't believe themselves. They don't believe that they need a Savior. That's what it is. People... People really don't believe that they need a Savior. They really don't. And if they do kind of think that maybe they're not all that good, this isn't the way that fallen men conceive of being made right with God. Oh, I just clean up a little bit here, and I clean up a little bit there, and I put on a little cloak of good, you know, deeds, and I go and I serve, you know, at Thanksgiving, instead of having dinner at my house, I go down to the rescue mission and I serve out, you know, the soup down there. And then, you know, I stop at Wendy's and I don't indulge in a turkey. I just eat Wendy's for Thanksgiving. And I just do all these little things that are tokens of whatever. And God says, that's good enough. <laughs> no, he doesn't. No, actually, he doesn't. This is not how people conceive of being saved. Certainly not through a cross. Not like this. Not like this. If somebody's got to save me, I prefer a hero with a cape. With a Colgate smile. That's what I want, right? I don't, I don't want a hero that's humiliated and beaten and mocked and suffers like this. I want somebody that, well, reflects just what I'm worth. That's what I want. To admit that we can't save ourselves and to confess that salvation must come through another and in such a humiliating and degrading way, it wrecks our self-esteem. Good, it needs wrecked. It makes our boasting in ourselves foolish and it reveals the depravity in our hearts that we downplay and we attempt to hide. 
And in response to that, God says, Behold the Lamb. Behold my servant. He, this one who's, who to blinded eyes is undistinguished and unimpressive and rejected and shamed, he's the Holy One of God. He's the Son of the living God. He's the one who's coming to the world for the sake of sinners and nothing else but his humiliation and his suffering and his death is sufficient to rescue wretched, lost sinners bound in their sin. Sin that makes them blind to their need and callous in their conscience and willful rejecters of God and blind to the beauty of Jesus. Behold, open up your eyes and see the rejected servant who saves. See, here's the truth about the cross. And we find it right here, starting in verse 5. Look at it. Verses 5 and 6. This one that's looking at the cross, Isaiah. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We thought he was dying for himself. He wasn't. He was dying for us. And he puts it into clear terms here. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want to ask you a question. Okay, here it is. What's the essence of Christianity? What is it that makes Christianity different from all the religions of the world? What is it that, 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 that makes it different from everything else? I'll tell you what it is. It's that God himself provides the Savior who saves the sinner, and you don't save yourself. That's what it is. It's that we've got a Savior, the perfect servant of God, who saves our sin-laden souls. I say, it says, man, here's the truth about every one of us, right? All we like sheep have gone astray and turned to our own way all of us frank sinatra made a mint off a song i did it my way right he sure did wonder how that worked out for him all of us have rebelled against god and his goodness holy authority we've rebelled against his good law we've rebelled against the god who is three times holy perfectly pure burning in his purity and we have made ourselves, us, uh, us puny figurines of dust and clay have made ourselves the authority. We said, we're bigger than you, God. We're smarter than you. We're wiser than you. We don't need you. We're gods ourselves. And so we, we made ourselves our own authority. Our own master and we pursued our own sinful desires, living according to our own rules and carrying out the desires of our body and our minds, disdaining God's holiness, his sovereign glory as creator and Lord and seeking our own glory, right? That's who we are. That's who humanity is. And that's who you are apart from Christ. You're not nice. That could be debated. But I am being honest. Let me think about it. Can we just be honest for a second? The litany of our offenses against the holy God. It starts with idolatry, right? We idolize ourselves. It starts with idolatry. And then it proceeds in all kinds of other things. Hatred, sexual immorality, deceit, stealing, envy, covetousness, 
pride, slander, strife, and more. Look, the litany of our sins against God is endless, isn't it? For people who think they're good, man, just read the Ten Commandments. You won't get out of the first one till you realize you're not. We've made ourselves worthy only of God's wrath and judgment. Sin against an infinitely glorious and a holy God deserves eternal death in hell. That's what it deserves. But you know what? Here's the glory of the gospel. It's this. Is that when God could have said, after we sinned against him, after we had been given everything we could possibly want in the Garden of Eden, right? Our father Adam, when he sinned against him and brought all of us into sin too, God could have said, man, what did I do? I'm done with this. He could have wiped everyone off the face of the map. And you know what? He'd have been holy and just. But God wasn't willing to leave us in our guilty and our condemned condition, even though he had every right to do so. Instead, you know what he did? You know what he did? He planned, made a plan from, from in ages past to send a suffering servant to bear our sins as a substitute for us and to endure the wrath and the hatred of God towards sin in our place and the only one in all the universe that was fit to do it was his only begotten son and we had laden our souls and and i I mean laden buddy like like going to golden corral and going through five and six times we had laden our souls with sin and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all Everyone who believed, he laid our iniquity on him. Now, that's the heart of Christianity right there. Jesus came into this world ultimately to die. He came into this world to take our place. He came to this world to die in our place for our sake, according to the will of the Father, bearing the load of our iniquity. It's not just some sentimental thing on God's part. Jesus didn't just come into the world to show God's goodwill to y'all. God's eternal plan for the salvation of sinners was penal substitution. And I want you to write those words down if you're a note taker. Penal substitution. That's what this is. It's substitution, beloved, in that Christ took our place as our substitute before God. Now, this is the gospel I'm saying here. If you've heard another gospel, I'm telling you, it's not the gospel. This is the gospel. God sent Christ into this world to take our place as our substitute before God. That's substitution. And it was penal substitution in that Christ took our place as our substitute before God and he endured in our place the penalty, the penalty of God's holy judgment that we deserve because of our sin. He endured the wrath of God in our place. He suffered the full fury of God, suffered in a way that we cannot even begin to understand. But that if we're saved, praise God, we will never have to experience. Moved by a love that is beyond finding out. Moved by a love that drove him to do everything necessary to deliver us from death and hell, taking our place, he suffered the punishment and the penalty that was demanded by God's holiness and justice on account of our sins. 
If we're going to walk free, it's not that God just forgets our sin. He's not the kindly grandfather that has the grandson that runs around crazy all day long and, you know, breaks stuff and whatever, little hellion. And then mom or dad shows up to get him and the grandfather's like, he was an angel and just forgets everything. I'll be that kind of granddad, but I'm just saying, it's not how it works. God just doesn't forget. He lays on Christ the iniquity of us all. And he judges him as if he committed all of our sins. In fact, I want you to notice the very personal language here. He was pierced for our transgressions, for our offenses and crimes. Pierced. He was crushed by God. The word means shattered or broken for our iniquities, for our perversity, our depravity. The chastisement that we deserved. The reproof. The judgment was placed on him so that we might receive peace with God. And it's by his wounds, his hurt, that we're healed. That the condemned is restored to favor with God. You know what these words are? These words are a picture of the sacrifice in the temple. The sacrifice of atonement. Let me just walk you through it real quick. You're going to see this. A worshiper would bring, in the Old Testament, they would bring in an offering, right? An animal that they were going to offer, either as a goat or a sheep or whatever. They would, they would bring in an offering and they would lay his, his hand upon, he would lay his hand upon the head of the animal, right? While it was still alive. Symbolically transferring his sin to the animal that was being sacrificed. Right? And then, that animal would be graphically killed. In a graphic demonstration that sin deserves death. That it's deserving really of eternal death. Of the holy wrath of God. And when the worshiper did this, all those actions pictured that this person's sins had been laid upon the animal, which now must die, this innocent substitute that now must die in order to make an atonement and to pay for the penalty of those sins. And here's what we're meant to see. That Jesus is the lamb who's been slain for us. In fact, it's as if you yourself, if you're a Christian, it's as if you yourself put your hands upon the Lord Jesus just like the ancient worshiper did with his lamb or his goat before it was sacrificed. It's as if every single one of us who's a Christian, who truly believes in Christ, it's as if we were standing at the opening to to the cave in which Christ was born in Bethlehem, just waiting for the opportunity to go in and lay our hands on him as he began his life as that of the man of sorrows acquainted with griefs. It is as if later on, on the Via Dolorosa, on the, on the road that led to Calvary, it's as if we were standing there in the way 
And as he passed by, we laid our hands upon his head as he went to the cross, transferring our sin to him. It's not for sin in general that Jesus died. It's not for sins in the abstract. It's not just for the sin of sinners out there wherever they are. It's for my very own sin. It's for your very own sin, if you're a Christian, that the Lord Jesus Christ was pierced and crushed and chastised and wounded. The old Scottish preacher, Alexander White, he asked in one of his sermons this, these questions. Just listen to this. It's beautiful. He said, does he, does Christ, bear in his body any marks of yours? Have you made it impossible for him to say, I never knew you for all the marks and the scars that you put on him when you laid your sins on him one by one? Are there no wounds in his flesh that no sins but yours could have put there? Christian, it's for your sake that he suffered and died. And he didn't shrink back. Look at this. Look at verses 7 and 8. He said he was oppressed. He was afflicted. In other words, he was unjustly charged. He was innocent in every way. He had committed no sin. He'd committed no crime. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? I want you to see something here. I want you to marvel at this. He's unjustly charged. He's innocent of any sin, innocent of any crime. He has done nothing. He did nothing wrong. And he was railroaded into crucifixion by the sinful will of men, by the sinful desires of men. Now, we know God's will was overriding all of that, right? But I want you to see something here. But he's not like modern-day folk who, when they're accused of something, if they think they're innocent, can't wait to take to Twitter for hours at a time. Can't wait to get their fat faces in front of the TV, in front of cameras, to let everybody know they're innocent of everything. He did not open his mouth in his defense at all. Nothing. I want you to think about this. Why is that? Here's why. He had no interest in defending himself. Only us. He had no interest in preserving himself, but rather us. He had no interest in delivering himself, but rather us. No interest in rescuing himself, rather us. He could have called 12 legions of angels. But he didn't. In fact, he couldn't if we were going to be saved. He was cut off. He was violently killed. He, he sought no escape. He faced death, physical death, but so much more than that, right? More than that. He tasted the eternal death of God's holy wrath and fury against our sin. He was forsaken by the Father. Alone, He bore God's holy wrath, poured on Him. He took it all. And at the end of three excruciating hours, He said, it's finished. It's done. It's paid in full. I've done it all. And then Isaiah says, they made His grave with the wicked. 
With a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was crucified with wicked men and they would have buried him, thrown him into a common grave. But in the plan of the father, he was taken and buried in the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Why? Because although he was crucified as a common criminal, again, he'd done nothing deserving of death. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was innocent. He was undeserving of this. So how did this happen to him? If he didn't deserve this, and if he's the son of God, then how did this happen to him? And Isaiah tells us in the first half of verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the father's will to crush him. And beloved, we need to see this. We need to see this. It was the father's will to crush him. Not out of hatred for his son, but out of love for us. Out of love for us. Out of love for us who at no time have been fully pleasing to him at all. God's love for sinners who deserve destruction and wrath is revealed in an unmistakable and an astonishing way, right? Through, you know, it, it, through the crushing of his son. It was, it was the father's will to crush him in our place. But don't get me wrong. You know, we sing how God, our sin nailed him there. And it did. Our sin necessitated the cross if we were going to be redeemed. And, and Luther so wisely said, you know, we all walk around with his nails in our pockets. He's right. But Isaiah makes it very clear that it was God the Father who crushed his son so that we could be saved. It is God who planned the horror of the cross from eternity so that wretched sinners could be redeemed. It's out of his great love for us who deserve only his scorn and judgment that he gave his son. I don't want you to sit and think it was easy for God because he knew the end. Don't be like that. Instead, do this. If you're a parent, think to yourself, for whom would you sacrifice your only son? Or even if you got like four of them, which one are you going to pick? And who are you going to sacrifice him for? Who of us would ever do that? I'm telling you right now, if you had moments to live and it was on me to sacrifice one of my sons or my daughter so that you would live. Hey, man, I love you, but I'll see you in heaven. No, really. People make up so many stupid theories about the love of God. They define it in so many dumb ways in this world. They define love, you know, love is love, right? No, it's not. Or love is God. No, you got that backwards. God is love. But you know what? God's the one who defines what that love looks like, isn't he? Isn't he? And here's what his word says. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. Because we didn't, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, to be the wrath bearer for our sins. In love, God sent his son to be the wrath bearer for our sins. He crushed his son out of a heart of compassionate love for sinners like you and me who did not love him. And it was the only way that we could be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to the holy God. And if that does not overawe you, if that does not astonish you, if that does not amaze you, if that does not overwhelm you and humble you to the dust, then I just don't know what to tell you 
except that you have no clue who God in Christ are, is. None. The cross is the greatest demonstration of God's steadfast and almighty love. His love is a bold, it is a powerful, it's a transforming and pursuing and redeeming love that required in order for us to receive it, the physical and spiritual crossing of His Son on the cross. And when we see the wonder of that, I'm going to tell you what it does. You know what it does? It really does, when we understand this, make the seemingly the one verse that people know, if they don't know anything else, it makes John 3.16 mean far more than we have made it to mean. For God so loved the world. Or in this way, God loved the world. That He placed the guilt of sin upon His Son. And He crushed Him. He crushed Him. He pierced. He chastised. He wounded His only begotten, sinless, perfect, righteous, and pleasing Holy Son with His full pure, righteous, holy wrath against our sins. In this way, God loved the world so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what John 3.16 means. It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. But you know what else we've got to see here? Is that the Father did not coerce a reluctant or unwilling Son and force Him to become our substitute, to suffer His wrath and bear our shame. He didn't seize an unwilling, you know, son and force him into this. To endure the indignity and the shame and the pain of the cross. No, actually, Scripture says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. He willingly gave himself as the sacrifice, as our sacrifice in anticipation of the joy that was set before him. The joy of an eternity spent with the Father and with a great multitude that he would redeem. And he did it freely out of his deep love for his church. Paul writes, Christ loved what? The church and gave himself. Now that kind of love, listen, that... That gave himself up for her that, that he might sanctify her. He loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, make her holy and set her apart to himself. I'm gonna tell you, that kind of love defies all, uh, defies full description by a human tongue, doesn't it? And that's why Paul prays that we might have the strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Nobody took Jesus' life from him. The Father wasn't like, you're going to do this whether you want to do it or not. Jesus was earnest to save His people. He laid down His life of His own accord. It was the Father's will to crush the Son, to bring about our salvation. But make no mistake, it was the Son's will to embrace the Father's will and be crushed. That's why He didn't open His mouth. That's why He didn't try to escape. That's why He didn't try to rescue Himself. You know why? Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life, what? As a ransom for many. You know what? In a world, they would just as soon receive from God trinkets. Trinkets like, you know, a new house, new car, new dress, new smartphone. In a world that would that prefers a Jesus that just makes me warm and happy. I just love Jesus and Jesus just makes me so comfortable. Or a Jesus that 
removes all your troubles or who promises to make you happy and successful and satisfied in this life and all the ways that you want to be happy and successful and satisfied. A Jesus who promises to make you important and influential and takes away all your bad habits or fulfills your every whim. In that world, to that world, God who will not settle for less than the salvation of sinners offers the glorious gift of His Son wounded for our transgressions Smitten by God and afflicted, crushed for our iniquities, so that we could have peace with God and be restored to favor with God. What do you want? Which would you have? What do you really want? There are so many today, and, I, and I've, I've actually talked to these guys, some theologians that, come, that are in this camp. There are many today who rebel at the idea of penal substitution. They rebel at the idea of a death of a sacrifice, the death of a substitute. They say, oh, that's abhorrent. That's the Old Testament God. That's a a pagan notion that modern people, that good people should reject because it makes God, so they claim, some kind of monster. You know what? Tell me you missed the point without telling me you've missed the point. They missed the point entirely. In fact, in two ways. There's more, but in two chief ways. One, people who talk like that, They willingly ignore the gravity of their sin against the holy God. They don't get it. They still think sin's no big deal. They, 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 they ignore the reality of the gravity of their sin and the judgment that it deserves and really even the judgment that even now without Christ they are under. Objects of God's wrath. And second, they miss this point too. God didn't make mankind make the sacrifice. God himself provided the sacrifice that must be made for our salvation. God didn't just pick somebody indiscriminately out of the earth and say, this is the one guy. He's the one that's going to stand in the place of everybody else, and I am going to crush this guy, but everybody else gets to walk free. God made the sacrifice. God didn't command us to make the sacrifice. Who could we, wretched sinners, offer up? Who are we going to pick? If we had to pick somebody out of our church, who are we picking? Don't say it out loud. Right? Who are we going to put forward to redeem a lost race? Who could pay the debt of wrath that we deserve? God put forward that sacrifice. And let me tell you something. That does not make God a monster. That makes God rich in mercy and great in love beyond our ability to fathom. Because the sacrifice demanded was his own son. And he did it for a wretch like you and me. It was the will of God to crush his son. Yes, and indeed. But you know what else it was? You know what else it was that this day testifies to? It was also the will of God after Christ had satisfied God's justice and upheld God's holiness in his sacrifice for sin on the cross. It was God's will to raise his son from the dead. God raised him up. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was his desire to raise him up, to exalt him to his right hand, to put his enemies under his feet. Praise God, the cross is not the end of the story. It never was the end of the story. God raised Christ from the dead. Death has no claim on him because the sting of death, or the sting sting of sin is death, and, and Christ had none. Through his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who is despised and rejected, not esteemed or honored. Listen, through his resurrection, he has been declared the son of the living God with power. He's been declared the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's been declared the Lord of life. He's been declared the great redeemer, the holy savior, the destroyer of hell and death and Satan, the lamb of God, the conquering lion of Judah. Worthy of worship, worthy of praise, worthy of adoration, worthy of obedience, and worthy of devotion. Cross wasn't the end. Cross was just the end of the beginning. In fact, the remainder of this chapter, look at it, focuses on the triumph of the Lamb. Man, this is so good. This is so good. Isaiah says, start in the second half of verse 10. Stay with me. We're, not, we're almost done. Stay with me. He says, start in the second half of verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By knowledge, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he bore sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now I want us to see below. We need to see how all these wonderful phrases. It's kind of a hodgepodge here. It's like Isaiah is kind of like, oh, let me over here. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to go over here. You know, I mean, he's like jumping all over the place. But I want us to see how all these wonderful phrases come together to describe the triumph of the Lamb. Because it's awesome. Isaiah says, look, when, when he sees, when Christ sees, when he makes an offering for the guilt of his people's sin, out of that anguish of his soul, right, he will see his offspring. He shall see his offspring. He will see. He will see. He'll, he will see those who have been saved by his powerful work of redemption. He will see his people whom he saved by his blood come to faith in him. He will see it. How's he going to see it if he's dead? Well, Here's, here's how, because he's going to be raised from the dead to live forever. The Father will prolong his days. That's a Hebrew idiom. It's a way of saying that Christ will have length of days. And in his case, man, he's going to live forever. He's conquered death, never to die again. Jesus said, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Amen. And so he's going to look and he's going to see his redeemed people, those for whom he has extinguished the wrath of God, those souls for whom he has won eternal life. And it says, Isaiah says, he's going to be fully satisfied in them. He's he's going to be fully pleased. He's going to be fully delighted. There's not going to be a black sheep among them. They're all going to be perfectly pleasing. To the Lord Jesus Christ. What exceeding pleasure he's going to take in seeing the fruit of his sacrifice. The untold multitudes who have and who will come to him in faith. He's going to be satisfied. Overjoyed to see. Right? And then, you know, Isaiah says it's because it's, it's by his knowledge the Lord Jesus Christ will have made many to be accounted righteous and has borne their iniquities. What is he, what is he saying there? He's saying he's going to be satisfied because he's going to think about what it cost him to redeem all these people. In other words, he knew what it was going to take. It's not when Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's not like he was trying to piece it together as he went. He knew 
from eternity past what it would cost. He knew what it would take. He knew what it would require of him. And he did it willingly. And he did it in the glad and certain knowledge that his sacrifice would save a great assembly of people from every tribe and nation and tongue. He knew He knew that he would suffer and die. He knew that he would live again and forever to enjoy the reward of his sufferings and to receive from his offspring this glad acclaim. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing, right? He knew the worship he'd receive. Moreover, Isaiah says, listen, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, God's great purposes will be accomplished in his hands. From his place of exaltation at the right hand of the Father, the place of all authority and power, the place of sovereign majesty, he has taken the scroll of history and he's broken the seal and he's opened it and he's going to bring it to completion. He's going to bring it to completion. And all God's purposes in the plan of redemption will succeed in his place as sovereign king. He will ensure his kingdom grows as the gospel is preached in the power of his spirit and souls are saved until that day when he returns to consummate his kingdom and to put his enemies once and for all under his feet and to be marveled at by those who have believed his gospel. All of this is in the hands of our living and our reigning Lord. And then the last picture that Isaiah draws for us is the picture of a warrior who is who is who is honored and who is rewarded. A warrior who is honored and rewarded with spoil and with treasure. In verse 12, right? Look at it again. He says there, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The idea is, I'm going to give him a vast number. That belonged, and the Father's going to give him a vast number that belongs to him, and he's going to share in the riches of his victory with him, with his many, with the strong, with those who are made strong out of weakness through faith in him, in his life and his death and his resurrection and his reign. He's going to divide the spoil. He's going to pour out his blessing on his people, and he does it right now, day by day, and he delights to do it. We're victors with him in his triumph over sin. Over hell, over the devil, over death. He delights to share with us all that he's won for us. He delights to do it. And you know what? The last thing he tells us is <laughs> that he lovingly poured out his soul unto death. He took his place among the transgressors, numbered among them, so that he would bear the sins of many. And he rose again, and he continues right now to make intercession for us. In other words, here's what he's saying. So thorough is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for you, Christian, that as long as he lives, and he lives forever, his sacrifice will be sufficient for your sins. He rose. He's exalted for the sake of his glory and his honor and his praise. Yes, but for our sake as well it's remarkable that god can do this to him to christ belongs the glory and the majesty in fact i i love I, that's why i can't stand you know i drive around and, and, I, and i see these churches with easter bunny signs easter egg hunts meet the easter bunny what does the church become i mean that what does the church become like, i'm just gonna tell you like the easter bunny some of you aren't gonna like me after this you'll get over it The Easter bunny is an idol. And it is meant to draw attention away from the day that matters most that we can actually calculate when it is. 
the day that matters most in the history of mankind, to draw worship and honor away from Christ. And listen, it's a sneaky idol. Satan's not stupid. He gets it. It's for the children. Isn't that what everybody says when they say something atrocious? It's for the children. I know this is stupid and ignorant and foolish, but it's for the children. Right? And so if you say that, well, you're a big meanie jerkwad. If you say, yeah, but maybe the children shouldn't have it. Right? Right? Isn't that true? Oh, some of you all are mad at me. I know. I get it. Resurrection Day is not about Easter bunny baskets. It's not about chocolate bunnies. It's not about bunnies who lay eggs. I mean, what sense does that make? You know why it makes sense? Because you live in a world where a man can say I'm a woman and a woman can say I'm a man and biology doesn't matter. No, really. I mean, like there's no kid that looks at that and goes, I thought bunnies made bunnies. Here's what I'm getting at. This right here is the message. It's not everything else. This is the message. This is who God says Jesus is. This is what God said Jesus has done. This is what God says is vital and important. This should be the message of the church. And shame on those who on a day most holy would dilute the message of the gospel with something worldly and worthless. What do you say to these things? Really, there's only two responses. Okay, there's only two responses. You can look at this and you can say, praise God, I am a sinner and I need a savior. And I thank God that Jesus Christ is my savior, my substitute, my Lord, the one who has been pierced for my transgressions, who was crushed for my iniquity, who died the death I deserve. And God laid on him my sins and praise God. He rose again three days later. He's all my hope. He's all my life. He's all my everything. I will not give my worship to another. I will not give my praise to another. I will not give my devotion to another. I will not submit to another. I will not obey another. He is mine and I am his. Now that's the first response. That's the saving response. The second response is this. I'm not impressed. I'm not moved. How long are we going to be here? This guy talks a long time. I have other things to do. There are other things that matter more to me than this. I pray God would open your eyes. I pray God would open your eyes and show you your sin. Show you your rebellion against God. Show you the holiness of God and the penalty that awaits you if you continue to despise and reject and hold Christ in no esteem. God didn't give his son so that you could just take him or leave him without any consequences. He's given his son. He's given his son. You're not worthy of salvation. You're not. But none of us is. None of us is worthy of such a great love or so great a salvation. It's completely of God's mercy and grace. And it's yours for the taking. If you'll just repent and believe. If you'll humble yourself under the mighty hand of God confess your sins and believe I pray you will I pray you will but whether any of us does whether any of us does Christ shall be high and lifted up
and he shall be exalted. And because of everything that he has done, perfectly according to the, the plan of his father, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every tongue should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You're going to kneel. We're all going to kneel. The question is how? Right? The question is how? We will, we'll either kneel confessing Him as the one who loves me, and I love Him because I've received the forgiveness and the reconciliation with God that He has given, that He has won through faith in Him, or I will confess Him as the one who is worthy of all worship, even though I have rejected the offer of salvation and I am still in my sin and I am under divine condemnation. It's going to be one or the other for you and for me. And I pray, I pray for you and for me that it would be the first case that you bow before the one who loved you and gave himself for you and then rose on the third day demonstrating that he has the power of life that he has the keys let's pray together father in heaven i'm grateful for this time in your word and i am grateful for your testimony to your son and i'm amazed when i consider it lord it's perfect because you're perfect and your word is always perfect and so god i'm praying that this morning at this time of just decision that that lord you would move in the hearts of everybody who's here to respond in the way that your spirit would have them respond they wouldn't just reject or resist or 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 ignore Father, the moving of your spirit, but that they would respond in a way, Lord God, that exalts Christ and that, that Father, benefits their soul for eternity. So I'm praying move in our midst right now. Draw hearts to you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.